Good morning, everybody. Last Sunday, indeed, Easter Sunday, uh, we reached the climax and conclusion of John's gospel, the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth from the dead, his commissioning of his disciples as his sent ones, and the confession of doubting Thomas as the high point of the entire story, my Lord and my God. For, as our author immediately explains, he wrote this gospel for the whole purpose that we too, we who believe in Jesus, might be able to make that same good confession, that same act of worship, declaring to Jesus, my Lord and my God. And that, so believing we might have life in his name. And after these things comes chapter 21, which is our text for today. And it is an epilogue. What is an epilogue? Well, an epilogue is kind of a comment, a further comment um, on a conclusion already given. Lots of films have epilogues. You might have noticed them. Uh, once the story is finished... Um, either just after or just before the credits, additional information comes up, which is really interesting. There are words on the screen telling you, uh, perhaps, about the significance of what you've just seen, such as the film The Imitation Game, where, where suddenly we're told in words just how important this work that we've seen unfold before us, just how important that work was. Um, or uh, we might see... Uh, what um, those characters that we've just seen, we might see what, uh, read what happens to them in the future, such as films like American Graffiti and Four Weddings and a Funeral. Um, or sometimes an epilogue is in a film which is about real people um, and you get to meet the real people in the epilogue. You get to see pictures of them. So, for example, Erin Brockovich and uh, The Blind Side. Um, epilogues can radically alter the way that we feel about or experience stuff that we've just seen in the film. For example, with respect to those two films, Erin Brockovich and uh, The Blind Side, the epilogue, seeing the real people, completely changes our experience of the movie because now we really know this is a real story about real people who showed real courage and who really suffered. So an epilogue can be important. Epilogues, comment given after the conclusion has already been reached. And it's perhaps not unexpected that we might find an epilogue in John's Gospel because it began with a prologue. And that prologue, you might remember, begins with the words, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. And that prologue was very important in many, many ways. It begins the drama, the drama that we're going we're to read about. It begins that drama outside of time and space. Indeed, before the creation of time and space and from before the creation of the universe, suddenly, bang, we're on a riverbank the River Jordan, and we're in time and space. But that prologue gives us a way of understanding all that John is now going to show us. Likewise, John's epilogue 
allows us to reflect back on what we've just heard and seen and read. Like Phil was saying earlier, it allows us to reflect back on what we actually heard about last Sunday. So John's epilogue comes to us in three scenes. Scene one, a fishing trip that concludes with breakfast on the beach with Jesus. Scene two, Jesus has a heart-to-heart with Peter, verses 15 to 22. And scene three, the narrator tells us about the author, verses 23 to 25. Scene one. Scene one finds the disciples seemingly at a bit of a loss. They've been given a commission We remember that from last week, don't we? That was significant. When Jesus appeared to them on the evening of the first day of the week, he said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Wow, what an astonishing message. That's good news that everybody needs to know about immediately. The gift of the Holy Spirit and the astonishing gift of forgiveness of sins. The gospel, they have a mission field. The world, they have a message. The gospel. But chapter 21 seems to find them seemingly like twiddling their thumbs, not knowing what to do next. Peter, again and always, the bold one, comes up with a solution. And characteristically, not the right one. I'm going out to fish, he says. Characteristically, the other disciples follow his lead. Clearly, this man, Peter, clearly he does have that kind of inherent charism, that gift of leadership. He's the kind of leader that others want to be with and they want to do what he's doing. That's one style of of leadership gift, and Peter has it in buckets. So he says, I'm going out to fish, and they say, yeah, let's do that. But when Jesus appears uh, um, at dawn on the beach and calls out to them, they've fished all night and they've caught nothing. And the disciples, they don't realize at first that it's Jesus speaking to them. Again, somewhat characteristically of John's gospel, we get a time of day reference. John tells us it was Early in the morning, it is twilight. Sure, physically, it's just hard to see somebody in, in the pale light of dawn who's 100 yards away and standing on a beach. It's understanding. It's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's obvious that, that, that you know, might not guess that it was Jesus. Um, but on the other hand, of course, it's probably symbolic. Again, a time of day reference in John's Gospel. This is going to be a story about the light breaking in, the light dawning, the penny dropping. Uh, again, characteristically, uh, John knows, um, our author, he, he knows what we know. Um, and he knows that we'll know, but not from his gospel, but we'll know from uh, one of the other three gospels. He knows that we know from Luke's gospel the story about Peter's original calling, his first calling. He knows that we know about how the disciples had fished all night without catching anything. How Jesus had told them to put out into deep water and to lower the nets. 
how they caught so many fish. Indeed, they needed to call in other boats to help them. How Peter had said to Jesus, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. How Jesus had called and commissioned Peter, saying to him, don't be afraid. From now on, you're going to fish for people. Luke chapter 5. And uh, John knows that we know that already, otherwise this story doesn't make a lot of sense. Otherwise, you know, we'd be expecting, uh, you know, with the fish, John to turn back to the man on the beach and shout out, lucky guess. But he doesn't. He turns to Peter and says, it is the Lord. And, and we're right with him. We, 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 yeah, we're there with him as the penny drops, characteristically, out of all of the disciples, first four John, son of Zebedee, the beloved disciple. He gets it and says to Peter, it is the Lord. But, again, characteristically, it is Peter who jumps straight into decisive action and boldly goes where no man has gone before, jumping into the water in the belief that he can get there faster by swimming or wading than the boat can struggling with its catch of fish. But... Um, God bless him. Uh, Peter is absolutely right. What, what Peter understands immediately uh, is that, at least for him, this um, life-changingly, astonishingly huge catch of fish is suddenly meaningless, except that its meaning is to point to the identity of the man on the beach, the giver of instructions, Jesus of Nazareth, risen from the dead. And uh, along the way, our author records for us the exact number of fish caught, 153. And again, this is typical of our author, who uh, is a professional fisherman and shows us along the way in various ways that he really likes fish and he knows a lot about them. A lot of ink has been spilt in the last 20 centuries trying to decipher some kind of spiritual or symbolic meaning to this number. And there are no convincing solutions. I think that the point of the tally is authentication. This shows us this is really an eyewitness account. Our author was there. He knows. And we know that our author, John, son of Zebedee, the beloved disciple, we know that he was a fisherman himself, and we know, we know fishermen, don't we? We know that firstly, they cannot resist recording the details of unusual catches. We know, secondly, that they cannot resist telling others the details of significant catches. However, John, as a professional fisherman, clearly here breaks with tradition and resists temptation and fails to exaggerate. Because 153, clearly he has not rounded up to the nearest 10 or 100. Scene one moves seamlessly into scene two, scene two, which takes place after they'd eaten breakfast. Scene two is an intimate conversation between Jesus and Peter. Right at the end of the scene, verses 20 and 21, um, we understand that this, this conversation took place as Peter and Jesus were walking down the beach together um, with the author, uh, the beloved disciple, a little way behind them at a distance. When Peter turned and looked behind him, he saw the beloved disciple following them, 
rather than just one set of footprints. I'll let that joke settle in. The purpose of this conversation between Jesus and Peter is a little bit mysterious. We intuitively get that this conversation has to, be, has to have something to do with Peter's three-time denial uh, of Jesus on, on the morning of Christ's crucifixion. Um, uh, when, when, when Jesus was, was crucified, only some 12 hours earlier or less, Peter had asked Jesus why he couldn't follow him to wherever it was he was now going, and he had passionately declared to Jesus, I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus had replied, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And as we read, that is precisely what happened. So this conversation with its three times I love you seems to have something to do with that, but the conversation isn't about forgiveness. As John reminds us, this is the third of Christ's appearances to his disciples, and Peter has been constantly present. Peter must have, in one way or another, assumed or received forgiveness in Christ's name for his betrayal. Otherwise, his presence with the disciples is mysterious. This conversation, therefore, isn't about reinstatement or restoration of Peter as key leader of the group. Peter is clearly already acknowledged as leader of the disciples. That's clear in chapter 20 and in chapter 21. Something else is happening. We therefore need to pay careful attention to the content of the dialogue. For with three nearly identical questions, Jesus leads the witness. Simon, son of John, that is a formal and serious form of address, as though putting the witness on oath, which in a sense is precisely what is happening. And then the questions, the second and the third uh, questions are examinations. Uh, they're uh, very, they're almost, they're, the second and the third are identical. Do you love me? To which the witness responds, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Peter was hurt by the third instance of essentially the same question. He did not understand that Jesus wanted him to tell him that he loved him three times. Why three times? Well, perhaps one reason is that although Peter has already been forgiven, and Peter knows it, he needs now by way of formal vow to renounce his earlier oaths and vows. Jesus is breaking the power of a spiritual stronghold. Also, the first question of Jesus' three is the same question, but in its longest and fullest form. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? These what? To whom or to what does that demonstrative pronoun, these, refer? Is Jesus asking Peter, do you love me more than these guys love me? No, Peter is in no place to be able to judge or measure the love that the other disciples may or may not have for Jesus. 
is Jesus therefore asking, do you love me more than you love these guys? That's possible. In other words, do you now hold me in higher regard than the opinion of those around you? Are you done with fear of man? That fear of man that led you to betray me three times, deny me three times. Are you still worried about what others think? Do you love me more than these men? A third possibility is Jesus is asking Peter, do you love me more than you love these fish? Probably. That would explain Peter's unhesitating and swift reply, yes, Lord, of course I love you more than fish. What kind of question is that? But it was Peter's idea to take the disciples out for a fishing trip rather than evangelizing. Perhaps Jesus is asking Peter if actually now he is ready, finally, finally to put fishing behind him, to leave occupation, employment, security, safety, family interests and expectations, savings and superannuation, to simply trust and follow. Is Peter ready to sit light to the things of this world for the sake of the kingdom? Because three times Jesus responds to Peter's testimony that he loves Jesus with a command. Feed my lambs. Take care of my sheep. Feed my sheep. And it's easy to decode figurative, that figurative language um, to, to look after to, to sheep or, the, or to look after God's flock or Christ's flock. That's to take care of the disciples. That's to take care of uh, Jesus' followers. And in the Bible, to feed, where to feed, uh, that verb is used figuratively, it usually means to teach, to feed minds as well as mouths. That Peter is the leader is understood. That Peter is a key leader is assumed. What Jesus seems to be talking about is what it means to be a leader in Christian community. The first time Peter was called, he was called from being a fisherman to be a fisher of men, an evangelist. Now, similarly, he's being called from being a fisherman to being a shepherd, a pastor. I don't want you to hunt for fish. I want you to take care of sheep. The, the conversation is a reorientation, a disruption. Love for Jesus must be manifest in caring, nurturing, teaching, action unto the rest of the flock. A Christian leader cannot say, I really love Jesus. I just don't care much for his disciples. That's a contradiction in terms. For me, as a pastor teacher, the measure of my love for Jesus must be the measure of my love for his people, collectively and individually. But Jesus has even more to say, a lot more. Insofar as Peter's earlier declaration was, I will lay down my life for you, Jesus' words now speak to that, telling him and us that a second chance to live for Jesus is a second chance to die. 
for Jesus. Verse 18, very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And uh, John's, uh, the original recipients of this gospel, the, the first recipients, the first audience, they undoubtedly knew the rest of the story, how Peter was crucified as part of Nero's persecution of Christians in Rome in the early 60s. But what would Peter have made of that when he heard that on that day? On the one hand, good to hear that you're going to live long enough to make it to old age. Not everybody does. On the other hand, Jesus has just spoken clearly enough about the fact that he will indeed die a martyr's death. Peter will follow Jesus, will follow Jesus to the cross, being crucified, and according to church tradition, upside down, because he asked for that, claiming as he was about to be nailed to a cross that he wasn't worthy to die exactly the same way as his Lord and God. Please, please crucify me upside down. Nevertheless, on that day, perhaps hard to hear. Um, not, not many people get an indication of um, you know, exactly how they're going to die 30 years in advance. Possibly Peter's immediate response to Jesus saying, follow me, is to turn around and look back. Um, possibly too confronting to take in fully. But it would mean that on that day, Peter would be would be prepared. He knew it was coming. And so um, Peter's turning forms a segue into scene three. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who'd leaned back against Jesus at the supper and said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the disciples that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? In other words, Jesus is not saying to Peter, John's going to live until the second coming. Rather, he is saying, that's none of your business. But Jesus' words also affirm for us that physical death martyrdom is not the only way to follow Jesus. Do, do, do you, do I, do we know that Jesus rose from the dead? Then we must follow him. What does that mean? Well, it could be death by martyrdom. But indeed, both Peter and John will lay down their lives for Christ, but in different ways. And as the early church grew to understand clearly, the privilege of martyrdom was a gift from Jesus. It's not something you decide for yourself. It's not something you try to make happen. No, it's, it's not something you could meaningfully claim. It's just something that is the Lord's decision. The Lord knows the plans and the purposes that he has for each one of us. But do we know the risen Lord? Then we must follow him. 
And that leads us into scene three. The narrator tells us about the author. And I say narrator because suddenly we seem to have a new voice, a voice that is seemingly not the principal author. Verse 24, this is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Um, they're difficult to understand, they're a bit mysterious, but what these words do for us is that they establish that the Gospel of John is indeed an eyewitness account of Jesus' public ministry, including his death and resurrection appearances. The Gospel of John is an eyewitness account from someone who was right there from the beginning, possibly, indeed, probably, a disciple of John the Baptist before he was a disciple of Jesus. And I've spoken in earlier sermons about our author, John, son of Zebedee, the brother of James, and I've given in earlier sermons a speculative rationale as to why exactly he would have wanted to refer to himself as the beloved disciple or the disciple whom Jesus loved, how that points to the identity of Jesus as Yahweh with us, as the Lord. With respect to the sudden appearance of a narrator's voice, this is him. This is him who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. It could be that the narrator is the author, that he's, again, once again, he's speaking about himself in the third person. That's what he commonly does. Alternatively, perhaps John has recently died and there's been um, significant worry about that in the church and um, that Jesus still hasn't returned and that somebody else is adding in the epilogue. Either way, we know that his testimony is true. Who is this we? Who's the we? Well, together with John or not, I mean, John could be speaking of himself and his, and, and his brothers and sisters um, in the church, or it might be another group of people, but we know that that almost certainly refers to John's church community, the church of Ephesus in the Roman province of Asia, that is modern-day Western Turkey. They knew that his testimony was true because they had known him for decades. And we must remember that in the first century world, it would have been very, very easy to check the integrity and the accuracy of apostolic witness and testimony. John may have been the longest surviving eyewitness, but if you'd been, say, a Christian in his church for, say, 20 or 30 years, you'd have had many opportunities to talk to Peter, Paul, Luke, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and dozens and dozens of others who'd been there or otherwise had been close to the action. John's eyewitness account stands as authenticated by the church even if the exact details of that authentication are now a little bit lost to us. So the Gospel of John for us is anonymous in the sense of the author being unnamed, except for his nickname, the Beloved Disciple. But the Gospel was certainly not anonymous in the sense of the author being unknown to his first recipients. The book's first recipients knew precisely who the author was, and they knew him exceedingly well, having known him for decades. We know that his testimony is true. Verse 25, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world 
would not have room for the books that would be written. Well, having just affirmed in the clearest and strongest terms the, the credentials of his book as historical, as eyewitness testimony, John now tells us that he wasn't simply writing history. He has a higher purpose. He's been selective. We know that already. There's lots of him really, really famous stuff that he chose to leave out because he, he knew that we already knew that. And he's included other things he knew that we didn't know about. He's been selective. His, his, his instinct is not that of an historian. His instinct is that of, that of an evangelist. He's pointing to the identity of Jesus. He's telling us it really happened. It's true. Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. Historical fact. And these are written that we may believe, or indeed continue to believe, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, we may have life in his name. The Lord be with you.